Hello, this is Benjamin Boyce, and welcome to the Boyce of Reason podcast. Today's guest is Christopher Paisley, who is a Philadelphia English teacher and coach at a vocational school. He's been working on a book called Inside White Fragility that won't be published until December, but currently he is involved in releasing a series of videos that break down Robin D'Angelo's white fragility ideas, or what I call a theology, piece by piece. In this interview, we talk about the weaknesses of white fragility and white privilege as concepts and the ways in which these anti-racist teachings operate more along the lines of indoctrination rather than a conversation that occurs. And all the different fallouts from that. We also talk about the foundational values underlying anti-racism and contrast those with classical civil rights values of individualism, universalism, colorblindness, and all those things that are somehow out of fashion. Anyways, I will get out of the way of editorializing and introduce you to Christopher Paisley. You know how technology, well, maybe you don't. Yeah. Do do you know how technology? I can be did a little bit. Yeah. Yeah, I know how it is. I'm I'm just learning, you know. With the COVID, I did my whole last two months on virtual learning, so I'm figuring it out. Oh yeah. Um, what grade yeah. do you teach? I teach tenth grade. Okay. Ninth and tenth grade. Yeah. So how we, are the kids adapting? The kids are the kids are adapting. It's the participation is pretty low. It's like less than fifty percent. So it's a shame because. Mm-hmm. We had issues with technology with the kids. They didn't have internet. Some kids didn't have computers. So we had this whole um, kind of – we tried to get the kids Chromebooks, and uh, we, we finally got them the Chromebooks. We got the kids hotspots, and then when it all got up and running, it was over in like three weeks later. So, <laughs> Oh, jeez. Yeah. What a logistical nightmare. Yeah. So technically, we're ready for next year. Hopefully, we're going to be back in the building, but it seems like we're going to be um, doing some kind of hybrid virtual in, in the building at home type thing. So we'll see. Yeah. 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 That's a whole different skill set for teachers and students to learn. Yeah. <clears throat> I think the kids are probably better than the teachers at picking up the technology. But the teachers, we, we the district offered us some training. So, you know, we're... We're, yeah, we're, we're picking it up. We're figuring it out. <laughs> yeah, the, um, the interesting thing, though, is that you have this, this complete technology, uh, I guess, renovation and implementation. And on top of that now, which is what you're covering on your channel mm-hmm. and in your, I guess, extracurricular work, is this, uh, this movement to implement like a whole new parad- thought paradigm called anti-racism. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, it seems like over the last couple of months, the district is starting to. Are you talking about the district's movement or, or what I was doing? I'm not I'm, sure. I'm exactly talking what, about like just nationwide. Uh-huh. But I, I guess what, what's going on with with your district? With our district, the Philadelphia School District is pretty. Um, I say they're pretty reasonable because we have a pretty big. It's a big district. I mean, there's charter schools, there's traditional schools, so there's lots of kids, lots of teachers. Um, so we, we're more practical we're like in the middle of, we're, we're so, it's kind of like, we're trying to just deal with the present moment. So when you're bringing in other things, it's like, everything is kept kind of real. We keep it real. So with anti-racism coming in, it's starting to trickle in. And, but I think as a whole, it, it's more, it's more, um, we're just focusing like on Maslow's hierarchy of needs, you know, we're yeah. still working our way up. So when you're at the top, you can bring in these other things, but I have a whole 
different opinion on the anti-racism. So, you know, I, we'll see what happens in our district, but I already have my own perspective on what I think we should do. And I, I don't agree with modern anti-racism. I mean, I agree with, with, I have the same goal, but I think there's different means. And I think sometimes the modern anti-racism is a little bit tricky. So I don't know. Mm. No. This is, this is a cool trifecta. I wonder if it's useful for you, but there's the goal and then there's the means and there's also the values, like the un the underlying values. And the interesting thing about anti-racism, uh, at least as Robin D'Angelo and Kendi, uh, Ibram Kendi, promote it, is that it sounds like it has the same values as the civil rights movement. But when you get into how it operates, to right. me, it doesn't actually uh, operate according to the same you know, values. What, what are your thoughts on that? I, I agree. Um there's a um, a professor at Columbia, a Columbia professor. His name's John McWhorter, um, and he, yeah, he um, he talks about modern anti-racism. He says traditional anti-racism was more about the you know civil rights and more about activism and social justice, and this kind of this modern anti-racism has got a different feel to it. It's it seems like it's more of a it's it's hard to explain, but it's it's definitely more politics. It's more politics than it is um, education. Like it seemed like classic things were about teaching kids, um, you know, how to how to um, you know more about education, reading, writing, thinking, critical thinking. But modern anti-racism skills exactly like classic multicultural education. It's more about skills, traditional values. But modern anti-racism seems to be more about um, indoctrination. And it seems to be more about um, I'm trying to think of the word I'm looking for. It's more accusatory than it's celebratory. It seems like it's more of a zero sum type of the thing where it's like we're not coming together in a way where everybody seems to be on the same page. It seems like you you need to you need to deconstruct this group in order to build this group up. It's like it doesn't seem like it's mm -hmm. it's uh, totally 100 percent like proactive. It seems like it's more reactive. So it's got a different feel to it. You know, could you could you kind of pick apart the difference between education and indoctrination? And this is really important to hear from an educator explain the difference. OK, well, here's a saying that I like to say with my students. I teach my students um, how to think, not what to think. So whenever I would do a lesson, I like to do current events where I give a student a topic, I give my students topics, and then they can decide if they're for or against it. Like, let's just say abortion, for an example. Mm -hmm. I would give them a pro-life piece, I would give them um, a pro-choice piece, and then I would kind of sit back and say, guys, do the research, you know, look, you know, do some research on pro-life, do some research on pro-choice, come up with a thesis come up with three arguments that you can really work with, find evidence, you know, real evidence, facts, quotes, statistics, expert opinions, and then write your paper. And then I would say, okay, let's hear what you have to say. And then I'd ask them some questions. Um, that, that would be more about education. Indoctrination would be, you guys are going to write about pro-choice, and this is how I want you to do it. The thesis is going to be, this is why pro-choice is the way to go. And then I want you to come up with a thesis as to why pro-choice is the way to go and then develop your arguments around that. So it's giving them the position and it's telling them how to think. And then they go from there, but they're really not thinking about the other side. They're not thinking about pro-life if you tell them, 
through pro-choice. When I, when I got my master's in multicultural education, it was funny. We, we, it, it wasn't about really about methodologies and learning about ways to teach the kids. It wasn't about critical thinking. It wasn't about teaching them how to read, write, give them core values. My multicultural degree, my master's was here are the um, politics and this is what you need to do. It was identity politics. It was all a lot of it was the things that you're seeing creep up now. Um, you, you know, this white supremacy culture, white privilege, um, you know, we, we live in an inherently racist society. Robin D'Angelo wasn't around as much when I was back getting my master's, but it, you could see the seeds and now it's creeping up. And it's like, it's not, it, it, what I always say is it's not a monologue. I'm sorry, it's not a dialogue, it's a monologue. That's what yeah. it was. It's yeah. not a conversation, you know. What years were you getting your master's? What decade? Because I was getting my master's. Yeah, I, I took I took some time off. I got my bachelor's in um, the '90s, and then I went back in like 2008. Okay. And, and and got my master's. Worked on my master's. It took me a couple of years. So now it's been, pretty ramping up. Yeah, it's definitely it's turned a corner. It seems like um, identity politics as a whole. It really seems like it's it's not as much about education anymore. It's just about. It seems like it's just about politics. It's really. A lot of Robin D'Angelo's stuff, especially she says it. She says, if you read in the beginning of White Fragility, she says, I'm going to come out and say it. This is identity politics. I believe that identity politics is the way uh, to, to, to bring about equality. Okay. And that's one way, but it's not, you know, it's not necessarily real education to me, in my opinion. Mm. You know? And why, why do you resist identity politics? What do you think of as the drawback of that tact? I think that it's one piece of a whole puzzle. So if you want to bring that in as one piece, and then we have all the other parts to the puzzle. So you can look at it in one piece. But when you're bringing it in in this overwhelming fashion, to me, it's divisive. It's dualistic. It's like saying mm. we have we have the privileged group and we have the disadvantaged group. We have oppressors. We have oppressed. You know, we have, um, you know, the dominant and the minoritized. And it seems like whenever you get into this, it just splits people into these dualistic groups. And it's like, even affinity groups, when you get involved in affinity groups, it's like the, the, the white teachers are in this group, the teachers of color are in this group, and then you can even break it down by Hispanic and, and um, African-American. There's literally, you'll, I've been to workshops where you get into affinity groups where you're segregated by race, and it's kind of like, okay, well, why, why are we doing that? And it's like, well, so we can feel comfortable. And then at the end of it, it's like, well, what? <laughs> so we can feel comfortable and talk amongst ourselves and feel like we can be free to say things. But then it's like when we come back, it's like, well, when do we talk about how we're the same? When do we talk about yeah. how, you know, and it doesn't seem like after a workshop we feel that way. It feels like you, we were kind of segregated and then there's tension and it's like, mm -hmm. all right, well, and then what do you learn from it? That's the thing at the end of these workshops, at the end of the D'Angelo workshop, because I went to a workshop of hers a couple months ago. And at the end, there's no solutions. It's always we're going to tell you what the problem is, but we're never going to give you these solutions you can bring back into your classroom so you could go in on monday and teach the kids something tangible to make them smarter to yeah. make them better thinkers yeah so you know yeah, yeah the, the work and i'm using the work in the way that that this uh, cohort says the work it's both indefinite like what do you do and indefinite it never ends like they say uh -huh. that the work never ends so yeah. it's this carrot this this ghostly carrot and ghostly whip that you're just supposed to kind of go towards what and and right. one problem that i see is that once you create tension in the group the the or tension within 
a group by dividing it into multiple groups, that tension is really easy to exploit. That's that's the problem that I have. Yeah, I, I think I know what you're saying with that. You could you could use the tension to um, bring in, I guess, bring in your politics. Is is that what you're kind of saying? In yeah. A way? Uh, any anybody who. I mean, if that if there's all that tension in a in a corporate environment, in an mm. educational environment, even in the classroom, the person mm. who sees that tension can actually use that tension to you know position people and and kind of I mean it, it's a breeding like ground for war. Yeah, uh-huh. manipulating. Yeah, yeah. I, I I see how that works. And and I really the things that I've read in D'Angelo's books because I read her White Fragility and then her book before that which was called What Does It Mean to Be White it was a book about white racial literacy. Okay. Robin D'Angelo is telling everyone what it means to be white and it's kind of ironic because her upbringing was a little sheltered. I've read her books and I've read some of her papers and it's like she she comes from a certain place and it was yeah. definitely she admits that she was she was a little bit limited but now she's telling me what it means to be white in an inner city classroom and I don't know. In terms of her experience in, a, in an inner city Philadelphia setting or any city classroom, I know she's, you know, I know she's done her work. She's paid her dues. She's 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 what very well read. She's written some things. But it's like when you're going to tell teachers, it doesn't even matter whether you're a white teacher or a person of color. When Robin D'Angelo is going to tell teachers how to teach in the city, it's kind of ironic because she's she's limited where, where it comes her her experience. Did you grow that. up in Philadelphia then? I, I grew up in Philadelphia. Um, I, I, I went to a Catholic school, so I went to a Philadelphia Catholic school for 12 years, and I, li- I live in Philadelphia right now. It's funny because I'm, I'm in a very diverse area. My the, Where I teach, it's a great student body. My kids, it's a perfect breakdown. It's like literally 33% white, 33% African-American, 33% Hispanic. It's just like a great blend. Hmm. And we're a vocational school, so the kids are learning trades, but then they also get their academics, so I'm their English teacher. And it's a really great dynamic to see the kids because I – and I'm also a track coach, so I'm coaching them. And yeah. they they get along great. Like they're they're like best friends. Like they hang out. They 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 um they don't even notice. Like when when you talk about being colorblind, like when I say colorblind, I don't mean that we don't notice race. I mean we should move past it. And the kids naturally, my students and the kids who are on my track team, they're great because they're just they're just hanging out and they're just living their life. And it's like they don't get caught up in like the identity stuff because they grow up with it. And that's that's the kind of the element that I think that I, that I believe in when I, when, when I talk about colorblindness, because that's something D'Angelo talks about. She says colorblind racism. Being colorblind is a negative because then you kind of live in a privileged white bubble and you don't see the reality of people of color because obviously they have a different situation, a different perspective as a white person and a person of color. And I get that. But I think the goal should be that we should be able to move past color to, to, to something of more substance. And when you know someone really well, you do that anyway. But D'Angelo seems to be focused on like, like stuck, fixated on the color. It's like we can never move past color. We can never move past race, religion, gender, sexuality, because they're the things that are needed when it comes to identity politics, because it's almost it's like the um, the commodity that they use yeah. as the power, you know, mm-hmm. and, I, and I think it's sometimes it's a shame. You, you need to you need to notice it, but you also need to move past it. We have to move past it at some point. Are the kids that you're teaching do because. I guess there's certain gener- – it might be a generational thing. So this is the context uh-huh. of the question. Do they make jokes about race? Do they make jokes about culture? Or does it? it's not even something that they joke about anymore? Um, you know what? 
There, there are some jokes, but the jokes are kind of, it's not, they're not mean jokes. They're not like mean spirited, like bullying jokes. The jokes will almost be as a way to, um, it's, it's clean fun. It's, it's not a vicious joke. And I'm trying to think of an example. I can't think of one, but from what I've heard, and, and I mean, I've been teaching for 23 years and been coaching, and I also work for the Philadelphia Youth Network, and I was in all the areas of the city and on the playgrounds and everything. And the kids, they're, they're pretty good. Like, I mean, when I say jokes, I mean, they joke around lighthearted, like they might say something as, as a stereotype, like, you know, look at this white kid, he, he beat you, you know, if a white kid's running, he beats a black yeah, yeah. kid, they might make a joke, but it's not like vicious, you know, it's nothing. I haven't witnessed almost anything in 23 years. That's this hardcore vicious stuff. And I know it's out there, but I'm lucky and I haven't seen it. And the kids I've, I'm around are good kids, you know? So why so, did you start doing a series on Robin D'Angelo? Like, what, what's your main goal with this series? And what, I guess what's the impetus, first of all? Okay, well, the first thing is in December, coming up the end of this year, um, I have a book that's coming out. It's being published by Roman and Littlefield. It's called um, White Fragility Explored, Examining the Effects of Anti-Racism on America's Schools. So I've always had this interest in, in things like that. This notion of white privilege really got me thinking mm. recently, and I've been really reading up on white privilege and looking and exploring just because I want to know what it's about, because it's definitely a very, um, when you hear white privilege, it, it's definitely something that kind of gets you, it gets it gets your blood pressure up. For me, it does. And I'm like, okay, so what is this all about? <laughs> so I started doing some research and immediately I started seeing Robin D'Angelo. That, that's how I got in contact with her. So I said, I, I read her books, I read some of her papers. And then I started to come in contact with Jonathan Church. I know he was on your show, and he's got a book coming out. And yeah. His work was really, really interesting. I, I started reading his critiques of, of white fragility theory, and he has some really good insights, and it's very objective and scientific. So anyway, I, I saw it, and I'm like, just similar to what Jonathan Church thinks, just the theory itself. It's like white fragility is, is definitely not totally based in scientific inquiry. It, it, it's not um, – it, it lacks – a lot of the things where you're talking about developing a scientific hypothesis and testing it, and it doesn't do that all the way. She uses more anecdotal and, and um, qualitative studies, but I saw what she was saying. I said, you know what? She has a point, but I felt the need to say there's a lot of, there's kind of like a silent majority. There's a lot of teachers when they hear this stuff, it's kind of like they can't speak up. When we go to a training, and you learn about implicit bias or you learn about microaggressions or, and they start saying, you know, everybody in this room who's white is, is perpetuating a white supremacy culture. Everybody who's in this room has white privilege. And then you're kind of thinking, OK, let's kind of listen to what they're saying. But I felt the way a lot of people feel and they're not going to say anything. So I figured, you know what, let me let me ask some questions. Yeah. Let me open up a true dialogue because we know, or at least from my perspective, there is no real dialogue. It's a monologue. You ask a question or you challenge, and all of a sudden it's, well, you suffer from aversive racism or you're suffering from white fragility. So there is, it shuts down the, the conversation. I want to have a conversation because really I actually do care about the kids, and I do care about you don't want to do more harm than good because studies show that some of this stuff actually provokes resentment and it can make it worse in certain cases. Yeah. So, yeah. so what's the usefulness then? of the concept of white privilege. Is there a use for that and the reality of it? Okay. I have to agree that there is obviously a different, um, you know, there's a different situation for a white person and a person of color. I'm, you know, you can't say that there's not. So that's okay. true. So there is a privilege. I mean, 
Um, just in terms of historically, the historical things that have went on in the country, the, the playing field, you know, w- when you grow up in a certain environment, you have certain things. Um, it, it's going to it's going to create a situation where there's definitely going to be advantages and disadvantages. I admit that. Um, specifically, there's a couple things that I mentioned in my book, and I don't have the notes in front of me, but there's a couple of ways that I, I would agree with white privilege. I mean, sometimes getting the benefit of the doubt in certain situations, there's definitely situations where you can see. I mean, if you if you go to if you go to a place and it's predominantly white and it's a predominantly white culture, you can see if it's that's the culture and you're white and you're you're a part of the culture. It probably makes it easier because I've been places as a track coach and as a teacher. And it's funny. I'll go to a track meet especially um, during the indoor season where, where we uh, run up at Lehigh University and, and I'll be on a school bus and we'll be on our way to the meet. And all of a sudden, like weeks will go by, but I, I'll just turn around and I'll be like, okay, I'm the only white person here. I didn't really think of it like that. Now, it's not like I didn't see color, but it's like I just, they're all my friends and I know the coaches and I'm not thinking about it. But then in certain situations, I realize, oh, okay, I'm like one of the few white people here and it changes it. So I can imagine when it's, when it's turned around, it can definitely be a situation where you're, you're, you're not part of the majority. So there's, there's differences. It's legit to a certain point, you know, but I, I, the way they use it now, I think is it's, it's overdone and it's, it's, it, I think it's causing some, you know, some, some resentment maybe even, you know? So if you had power to control the conversation, what would be the proper way for white people to understand their privilege? What, what, what use is that concept? If you can okay. Break it down. Okay. The first thing I would do is I would have to change the semantics because the word white privilege already has a certain connotation. So I would like to say I would like to change the word and talk about your advantages. Like when I was growing up, I I always my parents would say to me, "You're lucky. You have certain advantages," and that would make me feel like you know what I have to appreciate the things that I have. So yeah. when you say the word white privilege, like right away, it's like it it, it does it does have a certain connotation. So I would try and approach it and use different language. I would try and maybe say the, 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 the places or the ways where you're fortunate in the places and the things where you have advantages. And to get back to your question, I, I think, could you rephrase that again? What, 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 was the, what was the exact question? Well, here's the, here's the, the gist of the question. Okay. If, if everybody's thinking about white privilege, right, uh-huh. and if that's just what we're thinking about or what we're supposed to think about, in what manner is it useful to think about that as a white person or as somebody who's a not white person? So already it's, it's, it's tearing us apart already, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. just epistemologically. Um, uh, but in, to what extent is that a useful concept for me to carry around in my life? I, you were starting to build some uh, argument about just appreciating your advantages. Okay, so mm-hmm. how, how do we avoid it becoming used to foment unrest, resentment, and tensions? Uh, okay, the, the one place, the one positive of white privilege would be to make sure that people understand that in certain situations, and this is where D'Angelo talks about it, her background, I think she does come from a, a isolated place where, interestingly enough, she says her book was written for white progressives. So it's like, well, what about the whole other section of whites who aren't white progressives who didn't grow up in a liberal, like, white, isolated culture? The point is this. There are, there are obviously some white people who might be in, in a bubble and they might not realize that they do have certain advantages and they might not realize that, you know, just because you assume these things, just because you assume race doesn't matter – other people, especially people of color, in their everyday life, it, it does matter more than in your life. So that, that, that could be a way where you would say you have to be aware 
that that race is not it might not be an issue for you but it's an issue for others i get that now to now to make it as a positive i don't really know how to do that because to me it's almost like it's zero sum it's like when we talk about uh dismantling white privilege or deconstructing white privilege or deconstructing white supremacy culture to me it's zero sum it's like we have to we have to dismantle this in order to help this group and it just doesn't to me it doesn't make total sense because it's coming from a place of zero sum instead of like the mother who had the children she doesn't divide her love she multiplies it Hmm. that we should be multiplying not dividing kind of you know Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and why did you choose multicultural education what what did you think you were going to be getting into as opposed to what you received okay um I chose it because I wanted to learn methodologies. Like I wanted to learn actual like teaching strategies. Like I wanted to learn ways to help kids read, write, think, you know, become critical thinkers. And it was like, okay, there's definitely differences with my students. You know what I mean? Students are coming from all over the city because I teach in a school where the kids, it's a vocational school. So there's lots of different kids from lots of different backgrounds. So certain kids, it's like, you know what, let me, let me try and find ways where I can find new methods, new ways, specific things so I can, you know, teach these kids and reach all my kids because I'm, I'm actually a 10th grade teacher and they take the state exam. They take the keystone exam with me and our scores are pretty decent. Um, and I, as the keystone teacher, I wanted to make sure that all of our subgroups, you know, are, are going to get what they need. But when I, but when I went through the program, it, it was zero methodology. Literally, it wasn't any methods. It was just pretty much politics, race, race, politics. That's what it was. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, what, the, the, here's a like kind of a, a trend right now is, and I, I saw this in the college that I attended just a few years ago, where they don't teach grammar because grammar is a sign of the dominant culture, dominant culture being white, white supremacy, blah, blah, blah. But they mm-hmm. try to... it. What I see happening is that they turn every teaching session into some sort of trauma session instead, Mm -hmm. and instead of actually giving somebody skills, they tell you that you don't need the skill. So in that light, like, what what is the use and the worth of learning English and learning proper grammar and stuff like that like what is what is the core value in learning that and and, and in teaching uh, that okay well well the cool, the first thing is just literacy like we want our students we want our kids to be literate so reading writing i would say it reading writing speaking listening critical thinking english is is used in every single subject i mean we're teaching them how to read and write i personally like to teach writing I'm a writer. I really, I think I'm, I, I do a great job with my students with their writing. So teaching English, for me, my first love is the writing, um, especially the persuasive writing to develop the thesis and the arguments. So the writing is really important. The reading, how to read something, how to take a piece of text and to really read it and think about it critically so you can become a critical thinker. Yeah. Um, to learn how to speak, to learn how to listen. I mean, these are, this is what literacy is. So when you're talking about English, this is what you should be learning. And I personally try and make my uh, lessons um, diverse. I try and use um, different pieces of literature that are diverse so I can, yeah. you know, true multiculturalism. Yeah. But the kids need to, they need to learn how to read and write and think, you know, yeah. you have to. Yeah. What is that? I keep on, I, I ask a number of guests this, and it seems like a difficult concept to actually define, like telling somebody to put on a shirt who's never seen a shirt. Mm. Like, what is critical thinking? Like, what does that actually mean? 
What is the, okay. the core process involved in that? Critical thinking. I, I think it's to be able to comprehend what you read or what you hear. So critical thinking could be what, whether you're listening to it, whether you're reading it. So to be able to, number one, comprehend it, because there's lots of times where this person can't even comprehend the conversation or what you're reading. So you're able to comprehend it. You're, be, you're, you're able to analyze it. You're able to pull it apart, look at okay. the parts. Um, you're, you're able to look at it from both sides to have a kind of a broader perspective on the issue. It's not just one side because then it wouldn't be critical. All right. So you can see it from different perspectives. Yeah. Um, you, you can, you can analyze it and then you can use it as a way to educate yourself and contribute and be a productive member of society. You know, interesting. And do you find that Robin D'Angelo's work is, uh, defends itself from critical thinking? Cause I've, I've never seen her in a debate. Mm hmm. I think she actively I, avoids them. I absolutely think it does. I think she also. I think white fragility theory is a total insulation from critical thinking. It doesn't. It, it's it's about indoctrination. It really is. It's about here are the ideologies. Here are the ideologies. You are going to learn these, and once you learn them, you're going to spread the message, and that's what it's all about. It's not. Hey, let's talk about these ideas. Oh, you have a different perspective. All right, let's let's unpack that. Let's look at it. Oh, you you have a question. Let me. What's your question? Okay, we can talk about it. There's ne never any of that. I went to one of her workshops, and it's like I asked six questions. Hmm. It was a virtual session, and I saw the Q and A uh, box, and I saw how many questions were there, and I saw my questions going in, and they were the only ones there at certain points. Ignored all six of them. Huh. Just ignored them because they challenged. They asked questions, and it was just like that's not the place to ask questions. It's the place. To, it's almost like being in church. It's like we're going to indoctrinate. It's like the literally in a way. It's like the word of God. It's like we're going to we're going to believe this. We're going to uh, you know uh, accept this, and then we're going to go out and preach it. And that that's what it is. That's what it seems to be. That might be an exaggeration, but there is no real critical debate in my experience or from what I've read. What what do you think is so attractive or I guess uh, viral about it? Um, what, what's when you, when something's uh, when when you get a cold when it goes around? There's a word that starts with a C. Mm -hmm. Con contagious. What's so contagious? Contagious. About it? I think it's contagious because I think it's it's um it does what it's supposed to do. I think one of the hallmarks of anti-racism is that it's it's it, it's um it's confrontational. It's like provocational. It's it's agitation. Classic multiculturalism was just about more about diversity and learning. Anti-racism takes it to the next step where they want to needle you because they think that it's going to agitate. So it's going to bring attention and it's going to kind of wake you up. So it's like it, it's like an agitation in a way. When you read it, it agitates, it provokes, it confronts. Oh. So right away, it gets your it gets you kind of gets, gets your blood pressure up. And then I guess on the other end of it, it's so political that if you believe in these politics, you're like, oh, my God, these are great politics. Let's make sure everybody believes these politics. So it's like something that everybody can grab onto. Yeah. And it's very, like, spicy. You know, it's it's you just you just it's funny. There's there's teachers at school and I get along with the teachers and it's a great staff. You know, I know who the conservative teachers are. There's not as many and more of the liberal progressive teachers. But even the liberal progressive teachers, when I mention things like, hey, you're white privilege or, you know, white supremacy culture, Robin D'Angelo, white fragility, even they kind of get a little ruffled and they're like, yeah, see, I don't they don't agree all the, huh. all the time because they don't and they don't they don't think it's fair and they don't agree that they're perpetuating white supremacy just by default. You know what I mean? Okay. Yeah, it, it's I've been analyzing 
because I went to a school in 2015. They implemented her ideas. Okay. The, the administration put people in power and they started doing workshops. They had mm-hmm. her, they invited her. Everybody was speaking her language constantly. By the okay. end of 2017, in the spring of 2017, those ideas had been internalized by the students and it created a absurdist version of a race war. Just the most okay. fantastic race war that you can imagine. You can look on my channel if you know about Evergreen. It's just okay. absolute madness. So uh-huh. I've been seeing her ideas go through, be be internalized, and then been analyzing the output. And I've done videos very recently where it mm-hmm. seems like people read her work and Kendi's work. It's very good at capturing attention. And that you bring up a very good point. It agitates people. And when people actually intern, internalize it, they, I... I coined the term agitated. They just become uh, so aggr- uh, aggrieved that their mental capacity goes down and they just uh-huh. start spiraling out of control. So I don't know if there's any example of it being used in a good way, though I have received criticism that, that people have found that it's useful to come to terms with their own racism and then to go out and show people mm-hmm. how to come to terms with their racism. Mm-hmm. That's interesting. I'd like to go look at some of those videos that you mentioned. Um, I, I'd like to see some examples and hear about that. I could I could see how it could it could cause tension. You know, when when you when you bring all of these kind of ideas and, and you 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 um, embrace them, I can see it because it's funny. As soon as you start talking about universality or like, hey, let's all just see people as people, or let's try and find the fundamental universal human values, immediately D'Angelo's like. You can't you can't do that. You can't say that because people of color, their world and a white person's world is so different that you can't communicate on this humane, fundamental, universal level. It's like it's like um, a circuit breaker goes up when you try and bring the races together and say that there's a way we can be the same. There's so much resistance to it with right with white fragility and anti-racism. I don't know why. Have you have you noticed that? Like in terms of when you try and say, let's be colorblind or let's find common values, they say. There, there are no such things really common values because a white person's world is so fantastically privileged and a person of color's world is so, you know, horribly um, challenged or whatever. Like that's that's the frame that they come from. It's divisive. Yeah, my byline for, you know, the, the documentary work that I, I've done on, on my college, the Evergreen State College, is that uh-huh. they, they started out by saying that colorblindness was off the table. And by okay. the end of it, nobody could see past or through race. The only thing mm-hmm. that existed was color. So that mm-hmm. became a totem in a way and an idol in a way. And mm-hmm. I guess another question for you if you can want to take a stab at it, or if you know the answer, ah. is how okay. do we become inoculated to this? Like, what, what's the path towards becoming resistant to this uh, psychology that Robin D'Angelo is promoting? Okay, that's a good question. And the, the uh, interesting thing about that is when I got finished reading her book, What Does It Mean to Be White and White Fragility? I felt like I was almost, and I'm going to use the word infected, like I felt like, oh my God, like I would go back into certain situations. I would go back to my classroom. I'd go back onto the track with my track athletes. I'd go into the supermarket in Philadelphia, which is a pretty diverse supermarket. And I'm thinking too much. I'm like thinking, I'm like, wait a second, you know, I'm thinking microaggressions and implicit bias and all this stuff is going on in my head. And it's like, it's like, wait a second. I take a deep breath. And what I do is I just say, just look at the person as a person. It sounds like a platitude, but it's like, just be a, be a good person, be in the moment. Like, 
I, I get into Zen Buddhism just a little bit just to help stay calm. And I read a book by Eckhart Tolle called The Power of Now. It's like if you can stay in the now, you won't get into your mind and you won't get caught up into all of this um, over analysis of all these things that seem to be happening. So a way to inoculate yourself could be stay in the now and just believe in universal core values like honesty and love and friendship and, um, you know, tolerance for diversity and just stay in the moment, I guess, you know, mm-hmm. that's what I try and do. <laughs> yeah, there's it is interesting. It's kind of a self-fulfilling prophecy because only the people who are privileged are able to become decadent. And by mm-hmm. that, I mean, Robin D'Angelo, these ideas, uh, they mm-hmm. populate the brain in a decadent fashion, they they give you all this. Uh, they they operate in this non-material, non-methodological, non-vocational way. Like you can study this stuff and brood on it for years and produce all these books, but it doesn't actually do anything to help your fellow man, other than to inject more tension between your fellow man. It's right. Like, I, <laughs> I totally agree. Not not practical solutions, and it definitely it, it causes tension. And it would be great because there are certain things, there are certain, um, I guess, um, methods that you can use that do help. But it doesn't seem like these help. I agree. It's definitely, it's political. I always come back to the identity politics that she okay. mentions because yeah. she's she's taking it and she's making it political. And I think underneath all of it, that's really what it, it's about. It's it's mm-hmm. t- it's trying to empower. It's trying to gr- grab power to try and supposedly help, you know, people who need it. But it's like. Well, you're grabbing power, but then what are you doing with it? I don't know. You know. Well, you live in Philadelphia, which is very diverse. And I wonder what you think about the melting pot idea of America. Can we really truly live in a multicultural uh, world without it becoming just these different cultures having different outcomes, which create more and more difference over time? Mm -hmm. Like, how do you see us maintaining harmony and difference at the same time? I think I believe in the melting pot and I think that you can have all these different groups. You can still celebrate diversity and you could also be a part of the American dream. Like I do believe that there is something as the American dream. And I do believe that the American system is a great system. And I think everybody has a chance at at being a part of it. And I always teach my students that and they, they for the most part believe it. So um, I just think that you can have pride with your culture but we need to have this higher um, kind of a higher unifying value. And I used to think of that as the American ideal, you know, yeah. freedom, liberty, democracy, even a free market, because I'm a free market guy. I, I really think if you if you can find a way where everybody can have their own culture and their own identity, but then we can come together on a certain higher or, or another plane. And that's how you can bring us together, you know, and I think Americanism, you know. America is a great country. I mean, for everything that you've heard, you hear about it in the news. But it's like we had some really great ideas. We were not perfect. We've tried to make for the past. But I think that America is a great place. And the values of traditional America is is the place where we can come together and really be together at, at the same time, you know. And I guess this perfectly just wraps up the entire conversation. What is the highest ideal of this anti racist training? What, what's that high goal that, that is supposedly everybody's going to be working towards as opposed to the American ideal? Um, I guess the highest ideal of anti-racism seems to be that we have to, it's zero sum for me, we have to 
deconstruct, dismantle, and take away from these things in order to build up and to um, you know give voice to be agents of change for 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 this this group. So instead of it being a synergy. Instead of it being synergy like America, the American ideal is more of a synergy. Anti-racism, it's got the it's got the preface anti. It's so funny because it is. It's anti. It's like, you know, I saw a sign that said pro-black doesn't mean anti-white. And it's like I, I wish anti-racism, that were totally true. But in, in a way, it's like it, there's definitely an anti part of it. It's a deconstruction and a dismantling over here. You know, it's also stereotyping and generalizing entire groups of people to somehow bring about change over here. And, and an irony is it's not self-empowering. It still seems like it's forwarding white supremacy culture because um, Shelby, Shelby Steele and I think Bob Woodson, if I'm remembering his name correctly, he was on uh, Mark Levin and he said one of the problems with um, this kind of anti-racism, white supremacy culture thing is that whites are the agents of uplift for people of color where it should be more of an internal um, you know, empowerment from within. And I believe that all change is self-change. So all change has got to come from within, regardless of who you are. But some of D'Angelo's anti-racism stuff is more of perpetuating white supremacy in an ironic way, you know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. The, the concept of hypo-agency, of putting your agency in this outer group, or what you see, actually, when it is acted out, what you see mm -hmm. is the white people who believe in this stuff take on this really big like they're like the savior it's like the white savior mm -hmm. they think that they're so powerful as mm -hmm. white people that they can take on all of history and then somehow change the world it it's ve it's very hubristic it's yeah it's very egotistic too in a way yeah yeah, which isolate, which really goes back to the the idea of like the ego being a very isolating uh, kind of process. Like it, it's very selfish. It's very self centered. Even though mm -hmm. it's tricking you into serving everybody else, it really does evoke a lot of narcissistic uh, behaviors. I've seen in in, yeah. in in everybody who who adopts it, and in the culture that adopts it. That's what I've seen over and over again. Mm -hmm. The, the mention of ego is, is interesting because, like I said, I, I've read some background with Zen and I've tried to do meditation and the whole idea of ego is, is at the center of Zen. It's like when you let go, when you let go of your ego, you can kind of see things clearer. Like once you're able to let go of your ego, you can see things more as they really are than hmm. when you're so caught up within your own, your own, your own world and your own viewpoints. So the ego is definitely a thing. It's right in the middle of, of, of a lot of things. And what do you think is one of the, like the first steps towards uh, releasing the identification with the ego for you? What's what's been helpful for me? It's to um, it's a technique of my thoughts, like um, not to get pulled into my thinking. I meditate and I just let the mind settle when your mind settles and your, your brain because it's all that chatter mind. There's all that thinking going on when the mind settles and you're kind of in this place where you're settled, you're clearer. And the right actions start to arise by themselves. So it's kind of the mind with all this noise, it settles, and then you can be clearer. So ego seems to be affiliated with the mind. And it also has to do with your own opinions. Sometimes when I get too caught up in opinions and stuff, I say, eh, I won't be so as opinionated. I'm just going to try and take a step back, let go of my opinions, let go of my perspectives, and try and see things that's like wrapped up with ego for me. Yeah. You know? Yeah. The, the, the term white fragility 
goes right into the ego. Like, like mm-hmm. you were saying about agitation, it just it pokes and provokes and then kind of uh, tries in that provocation, uh, molds the ego into this, this mind cycle, this constant mind cycle. I found an advice column, and it was this teen girl who was going through her boyfriend's Instagram posts and his friend's Instagram posts and criticizing them not being anti-racist enough, not being doing the work. And you can see this, this young woman just completely caught up in this, I have to be a good ally, I have to be a good ally, I have to be a good ally. Uh-huh. And then the, the ironic thing about the reply to that the advice columnist said, well, it's not about you, but in this way that even brought her further into the fold, like you have to give your time and your energy even more to this thing. It's not uh-huh. about you, but it's always about you. So there's right. a lot of Kafka traps, Kafka traps, they call them, where no mm-hmm. matter, every time you struggle against it, you're caught more into it. But I think mm-hmm. underlying that is really a basis in the ego. And mm-hmm. that centering of the identity is really about the ego. That's the problem with identity politics. It puts so much weight on these surface aspects, this identity that you have that you identify with, which is again about that 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 concept or that construct of the ego. I, I, I totally agree. It, it does. The more the more you stimulate the ego, the more you're pulled in, and it's definitely at the heart of it. And it's funny because it's really not about you. There's that genuine. There's the genuine um, mm-hmm. feeling of really trying to help. And then there's that part where you're helping because you want to reflect it back onto yourself, and it's kind of about you, or, or you're helping because you want to you want to indoctrinate somebody else with your own politics. So it's kind of an interesting situation with that example that you just gave. It, it really has to be truly selfless. If you really want to help somebody, it's, if it's truly selfless, then then it, then it's real and it makes a bigger difference, and people can tell. When it's real and selfless and genuine, white fragility theory right away, you, you, you don't get that feeling. You, you, mm. you get the feeling of it's agitating, it's ego, it's, it's uh, dualistic, and it's definitely not – I don't think it's, it's the answer to the problems. <laughs> <laughs> so what's your plan for your video series on deconstructing – white fragility and or robin d'angelo's work do you have like a map and is there a schedule um, that i can advise or uh, advertise yeah um it's i'm kind of um trying to put up one a week and the book that i have coming out in in december you know because of covid it kind of got slowed down but i'm taking the the outline of my book and i'm kind of trying to work through the points Excellent. so some some of the things that i want to be talking about are um let me see what else is going to be there just just the background i want to talk more about the methodology um which brings in some of jonathan church's work yeah the methodology is a little bit limited with d'angelo i'd like to expose how she uses a lot of anecdotal observations and qualitative evidence but she doesn't have any real hypothesis set up and and it doesn't meet the principle of falsification like her theory can only be proved true it can't be proven false um which is interesting. <laughs> that's convenient <laughs> <laughs> right um I want to talk about anti-bias training and how, um, you know, the difference between mandatory trainings and voluntary trainings and the way people interact with that. Hmm. Culture is a big thing that I want to talk about. It's something that's hard to talk about when you talk about culture. Um, D'Angelo likes to pretend certain things don't exist. Like when you talk about school violence, um, in her book, What Does It Mean to Be White? And she mentions it in White Fragility. um, She talks about student teachers who have who have going through what she calls race talk or danger discourse. Are you f- familiar with what she says is danger discourse? No, I've never heard well, of that. 
there was a there was a student teacher who she brought up in one of her books where she said that they were talking about how they had to do a student teaching placement in this one area and it was a little bit dangerous or it was a little bit unsafe and she heard she overheard the student teacher talking to her friends and says you know oh i'm doing my student teaching place you know in abc and and i'm a little worried and nervous because it's dangerous and d'angelo was horrified and she was saying you know this girl shouldn't be talking about how there's um you know challenges and 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 racial possibly you know crime or whatever because she's forwarding this um this this um, kind of this dangerous or... idea. She's criminalizing. D'Angelo was saying that this girl was criminalizing people of color, and she was saying that she comes from a white racial frame that is that is dis- that is distorting reality. And it's like, well, listen, there is there is <laughs> there is some things happening in urban school districts, and a big part of my book is giving the statistics of this okay. and saying, yeah. look, it's not good to say that. This stuff is cultural. It's not cultural, but a lot of these kids who have challenges, it's it's like a coping mechanism in a way. Students act out as it's sometimes it's a coping mechanism, and it's real. Violence in school is real. It's not a pretend thing from a white racial frame. And when you pretend that violence in schools don't exist, she thinks if you pretend it doesn't exist, that means it's going to go away somehow. But it's like you can't pretend it doesn't exist. Number one, because you have to help them, and it's it, and it's a reality that you can't just say it's from some racist white socialization mindset you know what i mean yeah interesting yeah i i saw that in action at the evergreen state college where the white anti-racist professors and administrators the people who had got on the board of this anti-racist training uh they they saw things according to D'Angelo where they only saw their privilege and the students' disadvantage. And when the students took hostages, took over the university, took over the campus, roamed it with baseball bats, uh, performed struggle sessions, if you know what that is, where, where they're just standing up and tearing people down and rounding people up, performing criminal activity. In the mm-hmm. height of that, the administrators and the professors who were on board this stuff could, had no capacity to criticize or to, to, to critically engage with that behavior. And mm-hmm. they ended up apologizing for that behavior and putting those students who did all this criminal behavior on, like, in positions of power to teach workshops on race and to mm-hmm. reform the student code of conduct. So it really does diminish the ability for any sort of authority to set mm-hmm. limits on behavior, which I would argue is the exact opposite of what you want to do. Right. To prepare students for, you know, being productive members of society. Exactly. You have to help them. I mean, it's like the kids need help. And a lot of times discipline issues are is because the kids calling out for structure and help. So mm. when, when you pretend that these statistics and these, you know, these things aren't real, it's definitely not helping. And John McWhorter talked about that. You have to pretend that this stuff isn't happening and it's a shame. Mm. But, uh, that that's one of the things that I'm going to be talking about, hopefully in my series, just to plug it. You know, the the, yeah, the no, YouTube absolutely. channel. <laughs> the YouTube channel is called Inside White Fragility. That's the title of it. It's very new, so when you search it up, when you go to the YouTube search engine and you put in Inside White Fragility, it, it's it's a little bit down a ways. It's it's starting to work its way up, but it, you, yeah. you'll find it. And then I also have a website titled Inside White Fragility. Um, that's kind of trying to promote this book that's coming out in December. That that's website's very new, and that's really hard to find in the search yeah, engine. Yeah, we'll, we'll link everything in the description. and Okay. So people yeah. can easily find it. Yeah. For sure. That, yeah. So you will be tackling discipline, then, in the education setting, you think? Um, 
in terms of as a video you're saying on the yeah, on the yeah. channel or just yeah, yeah I'm, I'm gonna talk about that i think i'm going to get into some of that stuff in terms of the um the statistics and the fact whether or not you're allowed to talk about it or pretend realities don't exist i'm going to talk about some of that but it's hard to get into that because as you know it's like it's a tricky yeah it's a tricky place and i don't want to i don't want to put out the wrong i don't want to project the wrong image of of my kids in the district and everything because it really is is a great place yeah and the statistics that i would use would come from a philadelphia inquirer series it was called assault on learning It, it won a pulitzer prize in 2012 and it was great it went into all of the schools. It talked about things in an honest way, how to reform it. It won a Pulitzer Prize, but the tragedy is nowadays you could never write something like that, I don't think. I don't think you could ever do an investigative series that could get into the nitty-gritty of school violence the way you could like eight years ago because yeah. I think it would be – it would kind of be – uh, filtered in a way, I think, because hmm. you can't talk about it as freely. It's it's a shame because when you try and find solutions for this stuff, as soon as you start to talk about it, it's like, you know, you have to kind of, it's filtered, it seems. I don't know if you noticed that. But there was a story that I saw yesterday where there's this website called Reddit. It's very popular. I don't know if you've heard of it or not, but they uh, yes. Im- implemented this really weird um, kind of bylaws or, or you know, content policy. And they've, they've amended it a little bit, but they said that um, you cannot criticize people based on you know certain characteristics it, mm-hmm. unless they're in the minority. They said that the minority is so the majority, it's okay to, to criticize the majority or to okay. have, you know, negative, uh, you know, uh, media about the majority, whatever that means. It's a worldwide website. Mm-hmm. So what does that mean? Anyways, one, um, I believe the subreddit was called uh, Justice Served. And I have not checked this story, but it just seems to fit the pattern that you're talking about. That subreddit was not allowed to post any more about minorities committing violence. You could only show white people committing violence because Mm -hmm. the minorities are protected class now. You cannot you can't talk about that because that would reflect poorly on the stereotype of minorities as uh, criminals. Criminalizing. Yeah, Yeah, criminalizing. You know, Mm -hmm. so it's It's a double bind. You can't really, you can't fix it. You can't talk about it. It's the emperor's Mm -hmm. new, I guess, uh, mugshot in a way. yeah yeah it, it does a disservice i can understand how it could forward a stereotype and i could see the dangers yeah. or some of the drawbacks but it's like you have to be honest and you have to look at things in an honest way so you can try and help and you can't just hide or bury it or whatever you know it's 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 not a it's not a again and it's not open it's not one of these things where you can have a conversation it's like this is how it is. You know, you can only do it with this group, but not this group. You know, it's, it's, it's the same old thing and it's not healthy. Mm-hmm. I don't know. <laughs> yeah. Do you have a message of hope about the future of our great nation <laughs> right now? <laughs> yeah, I think it's a growing pain. I think it's uh, the pendulum swings back and forth, you know, and I think um, we're going to get through it. I think that this is a growing pain and I think it is the theater of politics. It's like, when you watch the media, you know, the, the entertainment industry, academia, the media, sometimes it's a smaller, it's a smaller segment than you think. So it's almost like it's theater in a way. And it's like, oh, my God, you get upset. But when you're in the here and now and you go about your every day and you, you're with your neighbors and you're, you know, I'm with my students and you see the reality of the situation and it's like, hey, it's a good situation. I have good neighbors. 
It feels good. Most people treat each other with respect. I don't see a whole lot of crazy racism in this diverse neighborhood. And it's like, then I turn on the TV and it's like, oh my God. But I think if you turn the TV off for a little bit of the news, I think, I think we're going to be okay because I think things that are real will, will continue to be real and things that are kind of house of cards will kind of come down a little bit and it'll be okay. I think it'll be okay. Well, I'm really glad that you and Jonathan Church and other people um, that I've been fortunate to speak with and people beyond who I've been fortunate to speak with, you guys are doing really good work at exposing this stuff and providing, you you know, engaging with this stuff that resists critical inquiry. Yeah. Thanks. I appreciate it. And congratulations on 50,000 subscribers. Was that just a milestone? Yeah. Thank you. Awesome, man. Cool. I just passed that mark. (laughs) Yeah. Cool. Maybe you'll be there pretty soon, too. Yeah, man. I'm chipping away, you know. <laughs> I'm, I'm trying. Well, great. Thank you so much, Christopher, for your time and uh, sure. for your thoughts. And uh, again, I'll plug everything in the description so people can find your your work. And it's ongoing, okay. so once a week. And mm-hmm. you have, I, I see two. Do you have, how many videos do you have in, in the series on Inside White Virginia? For de- debunking D'Angelo, there's two now. Okay. And then there's some others, but the debunking D'Angelo series, there's two. So there's going to be another one coming up. I got to put it together and I'm going to try and keep it going and, you know, chip away at that. So, but I, I really appreciate the opportunity to come on and have the conversation and it's great. I'm glad we have the discussion, a true discussion, you yeah. know, a true dialogue. Yeah, absolutely. It's always great yeah. to speak with educators too, because you guys uh, are always in that mind of what is the information and how do I talk about this yeah. instead of in, implant it in other people's brains. Cool. Well, cool. I'll end the recording there. Thanks. Uh, Congratulations for reaching the end of the podcast. If you enjoyed this product, consider donating to this channel via paypal.me slash Benjamin Boyce or joining me on Patreon. Also follow me on Twitter at Benjamin A. Boyce. Have a good night.